This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. Amen. All my life, I've been involved in some form of musical situation against another. From singing in little school plays in elementary school, to being in the concert choir in high school, learning how to conduct a choir, learning how to lead music. Through college, I minored in church music. And when I came to West Concord for the first time, I was the Mike Brooks. I led the singing, conducted the choir, led the worship. I love music in the church. I love all stripes of music in the church. If it glorifies God, I'm in. And I've been to, I can't count how many concerts and musical presentations. And this morning we had wonderful music and we always do at West Concord. But I'm going to tell you, one of the pieces of music that still sends my heart heavenward, that still takes my mind and places it upon Almighty God in a way that is just overwhelming, is Handel's Messiah. Have you heard that before? How many have ever heard Handel's Messiah? Have you heard it live? I've not only heard it live, but I've had the privilege to perform in the choir that presented it. And that kind of music, that that aspect of that piece, there's something unique about that piece of music, and specifically the Alleluia Chorus. I've been witness to and I've sung in the Alleluia Chorus every year in high school. We had a Christmas concert back when you did that sort of thing. And at the end of that Christmas concert, our concert choir, made up of 50 students, sang the Alleluia Chorus. And it just was amazing because in that school auditorium, as soon as that introduction began, as soon as that sound, the entire auditorium stood to its feet. The only other song I know that brings people to their feet, at least in this country, is our national anthem. But there's something about that piece of music. When Handel wrote that music, in his notes he gave glory to God. That's what I love about the music here at West Concord. As Mike leads it, as the worship team sings it, they try and seek, I know their hearts, to give glory to God. But I'll never forget that first time we sang it at Robinson High School in Tampa as the, as the entire crowd stood to their feet. And every time I've heard that piece of music, whether I sang in it or whether I observed it, that thunderous anthem the crowds would stand to their feet. I've heard it in churches. Churches stand to their feet. I've heard it in, in, in ball fields as choirs would come. And the entire stadium stands to its feet. Even in the concert halls of Charlotte. When the Charlotte Symphony and the Charlotte Oratorio Society sings and performs that song the entire auditorium would stand to its feet. Because there's something about that piece of music 
that celebrates. There's something about that piece of music that just takes every issue, every problem, and just pushes it aside to glorify God. As we open Revelation chapter 19 this morning, we have just been through 13 or 14 of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. We have heard the seven sealed judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments. As God takes those, took those seven years and brings judgment upon unbelieving Gentiles and, and the Jewish people who rejected their Messiah. As we consider the rest of the story, we see that coming. And yes, it is difficult to get through. It is frightening. It is graphic. But it is going to happen. While the church is, or rather, while the, while the world is enduring those judgments, the church of Jesus Christ, which had been taken out of the way, will be in heaven standing before the judgment seat of Christ, giving account for our lives. We'll talk about that briefly in just a moment. But as we move into Revelation 19, we no longer will see judgment against the world. We've come through. And as we move into Revelation 19, the entire picture begins to change because Jesus Christ is about to come back. And when George Friedrich Handel was composing the Messiah and specifically the Alleluia Chorus, he sought the words to that beautiful piece of music, not from some poem, but from the Bible itself. And as we read this passage and study it this morning, we are going to look at the actual hallelujah chorus that is coming from the saints of God. Because the world system and all of its debauchery and all of its thievery and all of its injustice and ugliness is going to be brought down. As you move through life, every injustice, every inequity, every, every slight, every, every crime, every ugliness, every bigotry, whatever you've experienced that seemed unfair, unjust, and unrighteous is going to be over. Those chapters of Revelation have been difficult to get through. But God cannot tolerate sin and he must judge it and he does and he will. But once that is done, we're going to be singing as well. Hallelujah. In Revelation 19, the word Alleluia, which is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Hallelujah, is just a simple word. You, you say it all the time. You get through traffic going to work and say, Hallelujah, I'm here. You put the, bed, the kids to bed finally and it's quiet and you look at your spouse and say, hallelujah, they're gone, they're in bed. Mike Farley gets done preaching, hallelujah, let's go eat. <laughs> I understand. And we oftentimes use that word and we don't understand what it means, but hallelujah or hallelujah means simply praise the Lord. 
Hallel is praise in Hebrew, and Yah is, is the abbreviation of Yahweh, God. Praise the Lord. So when we shout hallelujah or alleluia in the Greek, it is praise the Lord. So this morning, we are going to literally hear the scriptures that inspired Handel's alleluia chorus. Because this morning, we're going to see praise and celebration. So join me, if you will, in Revelation 19. We're going to see two aspects in this first ten verses. We're going to see, you remember the harlot we talked about? What we classified as the ungodly world system that we looked at in Revelation chapter 16 and Revelation chapter 17 and 18. The ungodly religion that has existed ever since the Tower of Babel. Human-based religion, works-based religion. God says he's going to bring that down. And then we looked at the economic aspect of this ungodly world system. All the great corporations thriving and living off the struggle of the people. I mean, even in our day today, we're struggling with great inflation. Stuff costs more than it should. It always has, really. Many families are pinched. Many families are struggling. Some people cannot even afford to make it in this world. While corporations grow and become strong. I bet everybody in the sound of my voice, whether here in the auditorium or listening online, can relate a situation where somebody in some business somewhere ripped you off, took advantage of you, cheated you. And oftentimes this ungodly world system colludes with politics and religion to create a Frankenstein of a culture. And yes, it's been going on in waves ever since the Tower of Babel. Raising its head in the empire of Babylon, Egypt, Persia and Greece, Rome, and even today in the pseudo-Roman system of our world system as we speak. Lives have been broken. People have been broken. Saints and the people of God have been martyred and killed for their faith because they've stood for Christ against culture. And even in our day, we see verbal persecution here. But yes, there are places in this world today that your brothers and sisters in Christ are being imprisoned and killed for the sake of the gospel. But as we move into Revelation... There's going to be a celebration that starts it. And the celebration is going to be ongoing because first, as we open this book, the celebration is for the destruction of that great harlot, which will one day bring itself to fruition in a world global government led by a dictator, a tyrant, a despot. The Bible calls the abomination of desolation, the lawless one, the beast. And in one place in the first book of 1 John, he's called the Antichrist, and that is the name he is known of by most today. And he will oppress and enslave the world and put them under an economic burden, the likes of which we've never seen. We're seeing hints of it today. You will not be able to buy or sell unless you accept the social norm and take his mark. Even today, the Chinese government, the communist Chinese government, has implemented social credits. And if you're a family in China, 
and you don't toe the line of the Communist Party and their godless culture, you may or may not be able to buy food for your family. In Switzerland, they're, they're trying out a computer chip in your wrist. There's even a video of a young girl going to the grocery store, buying her groceries and running her hand under a scanner and, and getting, hey, this is cool, because she can buy her groceries that way. Sounds very convenient, sounds cool, but also it gives people opportunity to abuse it. Well, we saw in chapter 17 that religious Babylon, God is going to take it down. Economic Babylon, God is going to take it down. Every, every bad thing, every difficult thing, every, every crime, every issue in this world is going to be brought down. And that's a reason to celebrate. I love our music here at West Concord. It celebrates God. It lifts us up. And the Alleluia Chorus is a celebration. And Handel went to this passage to draw the words from that. And we're going to see in the first six verses a chorus of four hallelujahs or alleluias that the, that the people of God will shout because this godless world system has been brought down. Join with Revelation chapter these things. You know what that phrase refers to? That refers to chapter 6 to chapter 17 and 18. All of those chapters, all of that stuff that we've been talking about, all those difficult passages, those difficult judgment, and those difficult uh, uh, times and graphic things we've talked about after these things. He says, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and honor belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Chapter 6 through 18. Because he has judged the great harlot, the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So as we look at this first hallelujah, this first, this first refrain, it is praising God for the salvation of his people. Not only saving us through the blood of Jesus Christ, but also those going through that great tribulation period. God will save out of that judgment time those Christians, those believers who come to know Christ and who, yes, many and most will lose their lives because of their faith then. But as soon as they close their eyes in earth and death, they are in, in heaven with God. And now they shout, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord for our salvation. The ungodly world system has been brought down. And we've come through it. Not only salvation, but vindication. As we continue on in verse 3 again, they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, we haven't seen them since chapters 4 and 5. Representatives of the church and Israel. See, we haven't seen the church. The church is in heaven with the Lord, standing before the judgment seat of Christ, enduring its own moment of reckoning and judgment for the things that they have done. We'll talk about that in just a second. But now we're back up in this place and, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, as we mentioned back in uh, chapters 4 and 5, these angelic creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen. 
The validation comes with seeing God's will and God's work being done. Because even, even today, ever since the garden with Adam and Eve, God's will, God's way have been challenged. God's will and God's way have been rebelled against. God's will and God's way have been reputed. But one day we're going to praise God for His will and praise God for His way. And God's message, God's mission will be validated. Hallelujah for that. Praise the Lord for that. Every critic, every, every skeptic, their mouths will be shut. As we move to the third refrain, hallelujah, this is a glorification of God. As we continue on in verse 4, it says, hallelujah, the voice, then a voice came from the throne saying, praise God, all of you, his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. They're going to glorify God. Verse 6, and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Can't you just hear the strains of Handel's Hallelujah chorus going through your mind? In this passage, we see this fourth verse refrain of praising God, praising God. Hallelujah, hallelujah for his salvation, for his vindication, for his glorification. God today is pilloried. The biblical God is insulted, spoken against. Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist skeptic, once said that God in the Bible is nothing more than a heartless and clueless tyrant. But we know the end of the story, don't we? God loves, God provides, and God wins. Hallelujah, God is to be glorified. Lifting up God. Glorifying literally means to, to enjoy His beauty, His magnificence, His power, His sovereignty. And then there's veneration. Another aspect of glorifying Him. Alleluia. Praise the Lord. For the Lord God omnipotent. Well, that's a big word. We don't use that often in our daily vocabulary. Omnipotent means all-powerful. Venerating God for His power. Yes, even in the midst of the difficult times that we are enduring and have endured and will endure, God is still God. God is still powerful. Well, pastor, if God is all-powerful and God is good, why does all this evil continue? If there's such a good and powerful God, why does evil exist? There must not be a God. No. First of all, you wouldn't know that evil is evil without an absolute good God. He is our absolute standard of goodness and is by His absolute standard of perfection and goodness that we can recognize evil. So the fact that there is evil does not disprove God, it only proves Him more. And as far as God being all-powerful in His will, He has chosen to give humanity free moral agency, which means you're allowed to make your choices. God is not going to force you to Him. 
God will woo you. He will not, he will not come after and force you. Just like you and I, we want people to choose to love us. You can't make people love you. You can't force people to love you. God could do that. He could have made mind-numbed robots who just often said, I love you, God, I love you, God. But I can have my Amazon Echo do that. If I feel bad, I can have it say, Alexa, tell me you love me. I haven't tried that yet, so don't worry. She'd probably laugh. But God didn't create us that way. God gave us a moral free will to choose because God wants to be chosen. So God is a God of love, but he is powerful. And his, his power has been, has, has been vindicated and venerated. Bottom line, everything that is bad, everything that is unjust, everything that is immoral, bigoted, hateful, at this point, chapter 18, it's chapter 17, God brings it down. And in chapter 17, it's celebrated. You know, I don't think the church celebrates enough, y'all. I honestly don't think we get excited enough about, about God and about his wonders and grace and power. I think we ought to shout and sing. Sunday ought to be a praise time. So the harlot that we've talked about over the last two or three chapters is now done. She's been brought down. That Babylonian godless world system is through at this point. And now another woman mentioned in Scripture. Remember, there are four. The Jezebel who corrupted the church in Revelation 3. Israel called a, a woman in, in Revelation 4 in typology. The woman who gave birth to the Messiah in Revelation 12. The harlot mentioned in chapters 17 and 18. And now the bride of Christ is brought and lifted up. Who is the bride of Christ? Well, if you read through the New Testament letters of Paul and through the Gospels, the bride of Christ is the church of Jesus Christ. Paul, as a matter of fact, likens human marriage a marriage between a man and a woman, to the relationship between Christ and His church. We are the bride of Christ. Just like a young man in Jewish culture would go and seek out his bride, give everything to acquire his bride, and then celebrate his bride. That's what Christ has done for us. He sought us, gave everything He had by dying on the cross, Rising from the dead, and now he comes back and will come back to receive us. Chapters 6 through 18 has been a Jewish flavor. It has had an Old Testament flavor to it. Because the church had been taken out of the world. Oh, there were still Gentiles as well as Jews getting saved during the tribulation period. But the church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. And just as the people of God celebrated the death of this harlot, this world system, shouting hallelujah, singing four stanzas, now the real party begins. Now the real celebration begins. We're going to go to a wedding right now. We're going to see the bride, the church, lifted up. 
Let's pick it up in chapter 19, verse 7. It goes on to say, Then let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. The marriage celebration. See, a betrothal in biblical days could go on for weeks, maybe years Mary and Joseph, when Jesus was born, they were not married. They were betrothed to one another. They were promised to one another. The dowry had been paid. But they had not yet been married and consummated that marriage. That's why Mary was still a virgin when Jesus was born. That's why Joseph thought about divorcing her, because they were as though they were married. You and I, we've been bought with a price. Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, left the splendor of heaven, came searching for us. We are the pearl of great price. He died on the cross to take the blame for our sin. All of it, past, present, and future. He was buried and rose again from the dead. His death on the cross was our dowry, purchasing heaven and our relationship with him. Yet we're still here, aren't we? Look around, yep, we're still here. For better or worse. That's because we're... But as we're going to see, there's coming a marriage, a celebration. Just like you go to a marriage today. You go to the venue and everybody's dressed. And there's good food and there's, there's music. And it's a celebration. I've done countless weddings in my role as pastor. And one day when I retire and change the names of the innocent, I'll write stories about them in a book. Because I have funny stories about weddings. First wedding I ever did, I was, the, I was the substitute preacher. I was all of probably 20 years old. I'd just gotten ordained or sooner, sooner around that. Pastor of my church called me and said, and this was Sunday after, or Saturday, or, uh, Saturday afternoon, called me and said, I'm in Miami. Why are you there? We were in Tampa. He said, I got tickets to some ball game. I was rather angry at him at that moment. He said, can you take this wedding I'm doing? If I were the bride and groom, and they were angry at him then. I'd never done a wedding before. I've left you the instructions. Oh, boy. So I get to the church, and everybody's there, and they're looking at me saying, who are you? I say, I'm doing the wedding. Fine. And in comes this, this very lovely tall young woman. She's all brided, you know, in her bridal finery. Her fiancé, the groom, comes in. He, he was a short guy. Okay, nice people. They knew the Lord. We get up there. We do the marriage. Everything is great. At the end, I say, I forget his name. I say, brother, you may kiss your bride. She reached down and she hefted him up. I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. I almost could not finish. It was great. I don't know if I'm never, I, I hope somebody took a picture of it because man, I got the mental picture and I'm standing there like. But it's a celebration. Let's go to this marriage, the marriage of the lamb, the bride of Christ. And the Bible says the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. So as we saw the, the putting down of the harlot, 
we see the rising up of the bride, the lifting up of the bride, and it's a celebration. Before that, there was no celebration other than celebrating the demise of this putrefied world system. And what's the first thing when you, when you go to a wedding or somebody knows that you have been to a wedding, especially ladies, men, we don't get into this really much. But usually it's, what was her gown like? You know, I've heard ladies, you know, uh, I've never had a guy ask me that. Well, what was her gown like? Well, if I did notice, I'm not supposed to notice. But you say, what, did, what was her gown like? And they have all the pictures. Well, let's look and see what the, what the gown of this bride was like. And it says in verse 8, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. You can just picture a beautiful wedding gown, can't you? Now look at this next statement. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You know, often when somebody gets married, they have the tradition. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. I would love to be able to tell you this morning when Susan and I got married what that was she had, but I'm a guy and I don't remember, okay? But there's always these traditions. And oftentimes people say, well, where did she get her gown? Well, she got it from this Versace store or whatever they get it from. Or maybe it's handed down from a beloved mother or grandmother. But it's a special thing, and it should be. Honestly, a, a, a wedding gown should be special. Well, what's interesting about this wedding gown is not only is it clean and white and pure, speaking of the purity of the saints of God as they've been surrendered to Christ, but notice the construction of this gown. Who made it? Christian Dior? Who made it? Sears and Roebuck? Who made it? For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here it is, y'all. We are the bride of Christ, we who know Christ as Savior, the church. As you're living for Christ and with Christ, you are determining what your gown as the bride of Christ is going to look at, men and women. Your life, as you surrender it to God, becomes the material for the grandeur and glory of this spectacular gown. So if you were to right now look at your life in Christ as a believer, based on your surrender to Him, based on your life with Him, based upon your service to Him, what's your gown going to look like? Are people going to ooh and ah over it? Or will it look like a pile of tatters? Don't brush this off. Don't set this aside. What is your, what is your gown to the, to, the, to the marriage of the Lamb? What's it going to look like? Oftentimes, someone else designs the gowns and makes them and gets the glory for it. But God has given us that responsibility. We are creating our gowns as we speak. And so as there's a celebration, a time of great joy, we focus, as everybody does, on the bride's gown. Whenever I conduct a wedding, I make sure that when the bride comes in the back door, as her father or family member brings her in, everybody's attention is on her. No offense, guys, but ain't nobody looking at you. Okay. At that point, no one's looking at you. 
she becomes the focal point, and rightly so. I, when I do premarital counseling, I tell the couple, this is the bride's day. Yes, it's your day, buddy, because you're marrying her. God bless you. But this is her day. Yeah, that's right. Amen. Thank you. We're just the accessory. David said that. I didn't. But everybody turns, and the, and the wedding march begins, and everybody in the auditorium focuses. And I always make sure the wedding part, I, party, at the rehearsal, I say, you keep your eyes on that bride. I normally don't have to tell the groom. And she comes down the aisle, and she is, this is how the marriage of the lamb is going to be. And the bride is the church. And the gown is going to be designed by you and I as the church. So it's going to be a celebration. The bride's guests, let's read on. Verse 9. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. The guests are going to be these Old Testament saints that, have, that were saved before Jesus came by trusting in His coming. The guests are going to be these tribulation saints who have been robed in, the, in their lives as they surrendered their lives, and many of them were martyred during this tribulation period. But the church in Jesus' parables was called the pearl of great price. And it's not that He loves the church more or these others less. It is simply that the church is the fruition of his mission, coming to die for the world. And there's not going to be any left out. There's not going to be any of that kind of thing. We're going to be celebrating the glorious, wonderful God, the bride of Christ, her guests. We all will celebrate together and rejoice. Oh, man, alive. Isn't that exciting? It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. So guess what? There's going to be food there, amen? Now don't expect chicken or steak because I don't think we're killing anything in heaven. I remember talking to our own Rick McDaniel. I said, what do you think? He said, we're going to eat leaves that taste like ribs. Works for me. I'm not too worried about it anyway. But all, listen to me. Understand this. All the turmoil that you experience in your life, all the disgruntlement, all the, all the discouragement, all the heartache, all the hardship, all the disappointment, all the, all the betrayal that you and I experience now, all the scrabble and heartache that goes on, it will all be over and we're going to a party. And we're going to celebrate. That's the point we need to understand. All of this, as Aaron said earlier, all of this has a purpose and a place. All of this is moving toward a final culmination and consummation. And God wins. And we celebrate. I think if that doesn't blow you away, I don't know what to think. You sit down and you conceptualize this time. And if you're a believer... This is amazing. Well, John, as the human recipient of the revelation of God, John was standing there watching all of this. John was blessed with a preview of what's coming. And just put yourself in the place of John for a moment after going through 18 plus chapters of revelation. This first century elderly fisherman 
has now seen the consummation of the human story. Has, he's seen things that are horribly dramatic and wonderfully celebrative. And John is standing there with his mouth open probably. Struggling to take it all in. Verse 10. So what was John's reaction as this angel shared this panorama of events? The bringing down of the harlot, the raising up of the bride. Verse 10. And I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. John was so blown away that he fell down at the feet of the angel bringing this revelation to him. And he worshipped him. So in the midst of this celebration, there had to be some correction still. Because John wasn't worshipping God, he was worshipping the angel that was the avenue of communication to John. And I'm not knocking John. I mean, if, if it were you and me, we might have done the same thing. I mean, after all, how would you would react to seeing all this stuff? You know, an interesting thing is I, as I study Scripture and as I preach... When I went through the book of Daniel and, and we're going through the book of Revelation and we went through Zechariah on Wednesday night, it seems like that's a big theme with these human recipients of this grand and, and, and phenomenal divine revelation. They oftentimes found themselves weary, broken, struggling, trying to take it all in. John had just seen the real hallelujah chorus. John had seen the consummation of church history, human history, the marriage of the Lamb of God and the church, the bride of Christ. And, and, and the spectacle of it, which we can't even begin to, to... You'll notice through this whole series, I have not put very many artist renderings in my PowerPoints. Because quite frankly, a lot of them are nuts. And a lot of them cannot capture the actual visual thing of what we're going to be looking at and involved in. So I, I'm not here to knock John. I'm not here to give him any hard time. I might have done the very same thing, but he fell down at his feet, bowed down on his knees, and worshipped this angel. But notice, the, notice what the angel said. This is John's confusion. Look at the angel's correction, what the angel says. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. This is the angel, one of the minions of angels that dealt with John. He said, don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have, who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. You know, we get all caught up in this whole titillation of prophecy. And we begin to focus on the Antichrist or we focus on the four horsemen or we focus on the communicating angels. And we even have a faction in our culture that worships angels. No, no, they're just servants like you and I. As a matter of fact, as human beings that are created in the image of God, angels are not, we're at a better place. But John, he, he made the mistake thing or someone other than God. We do this in our culture. We have celebrities, ball players, musicians, actors, and actresses. And before you shake your head and say, oh, that's terrible, we have celebrities in the church. Celebrity preachers, celebrity authors. People that we elevate and lift up and worship to a certain extent when our focus ought to be on God Almighty alone. 
And so John needed to be corrected. Again, not throwing off on him because I probably would have done the same thing. The angel said, listen, I'm a servant just like you. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus or the gospel of Jesus is the focus. We got so titillated and tied up in all the little nuances and details and we get all, here's the thing. Prophetic scripture and prophecy should not cause us to dive deeper into all these controversial theories. If we know the end of the story, and we do, we know the horrendous judgments. And notice Revelation spends more time on tribulation and judgment than, than it does on celebration and glory. That's because God is trying to get us to go out and communicate the gospel. He's trying to get us to go out and tell others about Jesus Christ instead of holding this good news into ourselves. Especially now when we know what is coming. So worship God. Share the testimony of Jesus. That is the purpose of all prophetic scripture. But rejoice because this godless horrendous, satanic world system will one day be taken down. Justice is coming. And at that moment, and by the way, just before, this is a prelude. Just before Jesus. Next week we're going to talk about what in my opinion is one of the greatest passages. At least all the Bible is great, but my, one of my favorite passages in Scripture is when Jesus comes back. Just like when Mike and the praise team get, gets up and sings the wonderful songs, sings and glorifies Christ, and then we enter into the Word, we're going to celebrate and rejoice, and we're going to a wet marriage party. And then, man, the greatest moment in future history is coming. C.S. Lewis said this as we finish up. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise, not merely the expression or not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Praising God, yes, it gives him glory. Praising God also is a way of enjoying the relationship we have with God. God doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our glorification. He deserves it. But we need the praise and glorification. We need to glorify God and praise Him. Why is that? Because it keeps us focused. Because I don't know about you, it's easy to lose focus in this broken, ugly world. It's easy to focus on the people that betray you and harm you and run after you. It's easy to focus on your financial problems, your health problems, your work problems, your family problems. But listen, my dear brother and sister in Christ, when we praise God, we're focusing on the good things of God. When we praise God, we glorify and honor Him. And it causes us to avert our attention from the negative to the wondrous positive of God. So we don't need to wait until then to say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Why? Because right now we have the victory. Right now we have it. Oh, I know that's not experiential because we're still betrothed. But Jesus is coming back. 
and all that is hurting you and bothering you, even your own broken body is one day going to be renewed and replaced. And Paul tells us in the book of Romans that right now we have the victory. Because in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37, he said, Yet in all these things, and he had listed a litany of problems and struggles and issues, but we have the victory now because in all these things, through faith in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, as we read these last few chapters of Revelation, we understand that as believers, we've won. Now, we didn't do the winning. Jesus did. But we enjoy it and appreciate it as we throw our faith and confidence in him. Not just as our Savior to save us, but as our King and, our, and as our Lord to guide us and lead us. I'm, I'm sadly forgetful of this many times. And I let the world and its problems just overwhelm me. But it's passages like this that remind me, Jesus is coming back. All this ugliness is going to go away. And right now, through faith in him, I'm not going to get the victory. I have it. And so do you. Heads are bowed and eyes closed as we finish this morning. Oh, my goodness. We've come through quite a lot. As if you've stuck with us through this study of Revelation. The waves of judgment and destruction. The waves of death and drama. These aren't fairy stories. These, this is coming. We know that because the Bible is true and right. We know that because, yes, God is love, but God is also just. We know that God is love because he's provided the Savior, Jesus, taking on flesh himself, coming to earth, dying on the cross to take the blame for everything you and I have done, are doing, or will do wrong. Paying our debt. The Bible said the wages of sin is death. Well, Jesus paid that death debt. It goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life. It is a gift. We come with nothing. And God gives us everything. But we must own our sin. We must confess our sin. And we must fall at his feet. And place our faith in him and on him as our Savior. He was buried, rose again from the dead, and he gives us authority to be children of God and provide salvation because he is alive. The Bible says he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, but he promised his disciples and us he's coming back. And just before he comes back, all the ugliness, all the greed, the bigotry, the hatefulness, the perversion, religiously, politically, economically, culturally will all be brought down. And he'll lift up his bride and his saints will celebrate. Oh my goodness, we have the victory. If you don't know Christ, trust him this morning. If you do know Christ, you may be going through a lot of difficulty and heartache. It is tough. The world is a difficult place. Even in a church, it's difficult sometimes. But at the end of the day, James says life is like a vapor. 
It appears for a little time, then vanishes away. When the vapors of our lives are done, we'll be standing at the feet of Jesus. As you're living now, you and I need to be working on our bridal gown. We need to be working to make it spectacular, beautiful, pure, not for our glory, but for his. Let that be what we do and let us celebrate what is coming. Standing together, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you loved us so much in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our brokenness and in rebellion. You loved us so much to come and die for us. You clothed yourself in flesh and your son, Christ. And by dying, you provided salvation to all who would trust. We saw in Sunday school that Jesus is the way. No one comes to the Father but through him. But all who can want to come can come by grace through faith. I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice knows him. And Father, if we know him, we are his bride. Help us to live our lives to bring glory to him, to bring honor to him. Help us to praise him. And as we, as we move and, and have our being, help us to be making our glorious gown for that one day bridal celebration when we celebrate with all the saints of old and we give glory to you. Until then, Father, bless us, we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.